Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And that's a very familiar passage. You'll see that once you get to it. But I'd like to take a little bit of a different angle this morning. And my prayer that, uh, is that today's study will be very practical and very helpful and that it will really encourage us. And I hope that we'll view it that way, that we'll view it as an encouragement. Because even when we're convicted by the Word of God, even when the Holy Spirit speaks directly to us and challenges on things, the, the purpose of that is not to create guilt and shame and, and to feel frustrated. The purpose of that is to progress in our faith. The purpose of that is to take the teaching that we're learning from the Spirit, not from me this morning. I, I don't even want to be involved this morning, but the Holy Spirit to speak that to me as well as to you, that when the Holy Spirit teaches us and when he instructs us out of his word, that it's for the purpose of becoming more like Christ. So anything we're going to study this morning, anything we're going to study this year, is designed that we would mature in our faith and that we would become more like Christ. This study this morning is designed to spur us on to love and to good works. Wouldn't that be a great result out of studying God's Word? Is that we love Him more, we love people more, and we do what we've been called to do. So I hope this will be kind of uh, fun and challenging at the same time. I hope we'll be willing to be honest with ourselves this morning and kind of see some of the humor in it as we're being called to change. Because this is a little bit of a, of a touchy subject. So much so that when I told my kids the other day what I was talking about, one of them looked at me and said, are you going to rant? And I thought, um, no, I'm not, but that's a great question, but thank you. No, I'm not going to rant. That's not the attitude of this study. The attitude of this study is for us to examine our lives, as with every study we do, to examine our lives and see what needs to change. And the goal is to be taught by the Holy Spirit and to be strengthened by His teaching, to make important changes and alterations in our relationship with the Lord, in our relationship with each other, into how we act, how we witness in our lives, how we represent Christ in everything. So please understand that that's the mindset behind it. And one encouragement I would have as we, um, as we study this is don't overreact to this study. Okay? Sometimes when we study things like this, we, we're like, all right, I'm going to make massive changes, especially because the first day of the year, right? So, you know, I've got some goals in my own mind of things I want to do this year, and, and a lot of times we jump right on it and say, well, I'm going to exercise two hours a day every day this year. And how many know that's not going to happen, all right? I'm not going to exercise two hours a day every day this year. I'm telling you right now, I would break that resolution tomorrow. But there are goals we need to set, and there are realistic expectations that God has. So as we study this morning, just listen to the Spirit speaking to you. Respond to whatever conviction and whatever training He's teaching to you this morning. It's not about other people, what other people do, what other people need to change. This is about you and me and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And then we need to be very wise in our obedience to His conviction. Because if we overreact, we try to, we try to jump on it and make all these sudden changes, it's not going to be sustainable. So, you're curious, what are we talking about this morning? We're talking about the fact that we are pretty much addicted to technology. We really are, are pretty addicted to technology. And technology is unbelievably useful, isn't it? It's so helpful and, and it makes our lives in many ways easier. I was watching a, a Western the other night 
and they showed the Western Union Telegraph and somebody was getting a message and the guy was tapping and listening and then he handed the, the one line and I thought, that's actually how it used to be. Like, that's not made up. That was actually how communication happened. Communication for us is so easy. I would guess that pretty much everybody in this room has a cell phone somewhere on their body or in their purse or in their uh, coat or whatever. Everybody's got this technology that we're able to just communicate right away. And, and it really, if you think about it, it affects every single part of our lives. And we are highly dependent on it. We groan when we have to get up to turn on the TV because the clicker's not working or when the sound bar is not at the right level, or we, we get irritated when the Wi-Fi is slow, or when we're in a restaurant and, and you don't have free Wi-Fi? Come on. Like, it's a privilege. It's a right, inalienable right that was written in the, in the Constitution. Like, we got to have Wi-Fi everywhere we go. But it's also so useful, right? You're in a store. You can punch up an app. You get a coupon. You can buy movie tickets. You can select your seats. You can look up directions really quick. It's very helpful. So, so there's instant gratification from technology, which is both a good thing and a bad thing for us. Now, I want to be very clear at the outset of this study uh, where I stand personally. I am not down on technology. Please don't walk away this morning thinking, wow, Paul is so anti-technology. I'm not. I love my phone. I love my computer. I love my tablet. I love all those things that I'm able to use, but I am concerned, and I think you are too, about our overuse of technology and about our misuse of technology. And I think we have to be very cautious because it can dominate our lives, and we can be very much at risk of it costing us subtly and not so subtly by, by controlling our priorities. And, and here's what I really want to get to this morning by adversely affecting the quality of our relationships. Technology can become very dominant, and, and it not only affects our relationships with each other, but it can affect our relationship with the Lord. Now, in order to understand how we need to live, the best example we can look at is who? Jesus, right? Because there's no better example, there's no more perfect example than Jesus. So Luke 19, I hope you're there, I hope you've got piece of paper and a pen this morning. You can use the space in the bulletin. But, but we're going to look this morning at his interaction with Zacchaeus. And I want to really focus in this text. We're not going to develop the whole text. We're not going to study it like you usually would when you talk about Zacchaeus from the standpoint of Zacchaeus. We're going to look at it from the standpoint of Jesus. And I want to just highlight two very simple phrases right here in this text that I think should be a great standard for us for the new year, okay? Start in verse 1 of chapter 19 of the book of Luke. He entered Jericho, speaking of Jesus, and was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Those are two negatives in that culture. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for Jesus was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, verse 5, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. 
when the people saw it, some of the grumblers and the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites in the crowd saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner, not knowing they were speaking of themselves, too. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, not to the crowd, notice, he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he, too, is a son of Abraham. And then we have this famous verse, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, two phrases. Both of them are in verse 5. And the two phrases are, he looked up, and then I must stay at your house. Now, within those two sentences, we're going to see three important qualities this morning about Jesus that contradict our natural human tendency. But how many know as believers, we don't follow natural human tendencies anymore because we've been given a new nature. So what I'm inclined to as a human, what, what is natural for me in my flesh, I don't serve the flesh anymore. I don't live by the flesh anymore. I live by the Spirit. So, so we can talk about what our inclinations are, but if you're a believer this morning, that's not your natural inclination. Your natural inclination follows your new nature, which is now by the Spirit. So when we look at Jesus' example, this is the qualities, these are the qualities that should define us. They are spiritual traits which come from the Holy Spirit who indwells us. The more we're filled with the Spirit, the more we'll be filled with these qualities, and that will literally transform our walk, our relationships, and our witness for Christ. So let's see the first trait that Jesus shows and how it kind of contrasts what the culture emphasizes. Look back at verse 5. Because the first quality about Jesus that we want to see this morning is that he had a personal preoccupation with people. Jesus had a personal preoccupation with people. It struck me this week that when you study the Gospels, you never see Jesus being distracted. You never see Jesus showing disinterest in people, even the people that were his enemies, even the people that threatened his life and eventually killed him. He was never disinterested in them. He was always concerned about them spiritually. In fact, the only time I can think of Jesus ever being distracted in the Gospels is when the, women, the woman with the hemorrhage stops him as he's going to Jairus' house. You remember the story? He's going to Jairus' house to heal his daughter, and the woman touches his robe, and he stops and says, who touched me with that whole incident? It's the only time I can remember him being distracted. And even in that distraction, he's ministering to her need. Now, this is the power of Jesus' example. He took time to be with people. Whether it was training the disciples, whether it was teaching the multitudes, whether it was going to people's houses to, to heal them or initiating conversations or stopping in the middle of the crowd like he does with the woman or he does here with Zacchaeus. He was constantly looking for interaction. Now that doesn't mean he wore himself out and was with people 24-7. People were always around and when they were, he took an interest in them. He asked them questions. He got down to the core issue of what was really affecting them with the bottom line being always spiritual. And when he did take time for himself, it wasn't idle time. He took that time to refresh spiritually. 
So if we're going to live by the example of Jesus, which is what we're called to do, and we're going to have lives and ministries that significantly impact people as we're commissioned to do by Jesus himself, then we need to have a heart for people. Now, there's a problem with this. The problem is that we are constantly preoccupied with technology. And when you're constantly preoccupied with technology, it ultimately is a preoccupation with self. Now, we've said this so many times. We live in a self-absorbed culture. Self-preoccupation, self-promotion is at an all-time high. And we are enabled in that because we have so many ways to communicate that. The media is obsessed with, with celebrities who are tweeting. It's so funny to watch because the double standards are laughable. And, and now more and more celebrities, it's just like a, a comic to me, more and more celebrities now are getting in trouble for the things they tweet, and then they're trying to pull back, oh, I didn't really mean that. Now, we can look at that, and we can get jaded about the state of the world, and we can say, well, look at how, look at how ridiculous it is. But listen, I believe the enemy is trying to use this, uh, this, this ridiculous kind of self-obsessed culture that we live in to dissuade us from caring about people. I think the more we look at it, the more we're just frustrated by how can the world be so self-centered. Now it not only leads us to want to be self-centered, but it can make us cynical and it make us critical toward other people. And the more cynical we are and the more critical we are of other people, the more it dulls our heart for them. And the more disinterested we become in the state of their souls. That's why Jesus' approach, look back at the text, is so bold. Because not only was he preoccupied with people, but what stands out throughout his ministry is that Jesus was preoccupied with people who were considered unworthy. He was preoccupied with people who had a bad reputation, like the Samaritan woman with the five husbands and, and, and the prostitute who was accused by the Pharisees and by Zacchaeus here, who's a tax collector, which is like the worst thing you could say. So, so he's preoccupied with ministering to these people. And then he's preoccupied with people that society had kind of overlooked, like Bartimaeus or the ten lepers or the, the demoniac in Galilee. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus was setting an example that he was caring for, preoccupied with, and ministering to the most challenging people of society. So he says, listen, if I'm setting that example, it should be very easy for you to talk to your coworker. It should be very easy for you to pray for that relative that, that is mean to you and doesn't love the Lord. What Jesus constantly communicates is love and respect for people. And our ministry will be most effective, our lives will be most effective when we sincerely care about people. So many people in the world this morning, here's the real problem. Here's why so culture is so self-obsessed and self-centered, because everybody is looking for love and for mercy. They want somebody to notice them, somebody to listen to them, somebody to care about them, somebody to take an interest in their lives. Ultimately, they want somebody to minister to them and pray for them. 
And the problem is, over the last 25 or 30 years, the church in America has been more concerned with entertaining people than ministering to them and discipling them. And that's why we're losing people. It's why the church's influence is less. So imagine how powerful it would be and how effective it would be if we really started to care for people, love people, pray for our enemies, pray for people that don't love the Lord, and really start to show them the love of Christ. And once they respond to that, then to help them to love the Lord more. This church would explode if we did that. You know why? Not because we developed some marketing strategy or we had the right music or the right preaching or wore the right clothes. That has no effect on anything. What will draw people in is if we show we genuinely care for them. Because people are hurting and they're desperate and they want to know they're loved. And there is no one who loves them more than God. So we have to be preoccupied with people. Look at the second trait that Jesus models for it. The second trait is that his eyes were open for opportunities to minister and encourage. His eyes were open for opportunities to minister and encourage. Not only did Jesus give people focused time and attention, but as he did it and he anticipated it, he saw every interaction he had with a person as an opening to show someone love. He saw every interaction as an opening to strengthen somebody personally and spiritually. That's why this passage, it's so familiar to us, but it's so important because nobody else noticed Zacchaeus. And if they had, they wouldn't have cared because Zacchaeus was despised. You can see it once Jesus starts to talk to him, right? He says, hey, I'm going to come to your house. Look at what the people say in verse 6. They all start to grumble. The text says all, so that's the Holy Spirit's word. They all begin to grumble. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. That's not a complaint against Jesus. That's a complaint against Zacchaeus. Why would he go to Zacchaeus's house? Oh, come on. There are people that are more worthy of our master's attention than stinking Zacchaeus. Come on. He comes around looking for money. We know he's on the take. He's on the grab. He's stealing from us. Oh, Zacchaeus, we don't like you, you little person that doesn't have any interest. You're, you're just, can you imagine the things people are saying about him? So he's up in the tree. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to come to your house. We're like, oh, come on. Come on. Wait a second. He's the last person on the list you should go to his house. What about this person, this person, this person? This, you're going to go to Zacchaeus' house? I mean, when we read the text, we got to feel it. Don't just read, well, the people began to grumble. He's going to a house of a man who's a sinner. Don't read the text like that. Put yourself in the crowd at Jericho. What were they feeling? They were angry. They were hostile. There were all kinds of people. And everybody was complaining about Zacchaeus. But look at what Jesus does. He sees a person who's hated and resented because of his job and his character. But he sees that Zacchaeus is hurting. And he knows that his life needs to change so when Zacchaeus, the one who could become jaded and bitter 
and reclusive and to himself and angry and hostile himself like Judas was. Instead, he hears Jesus is coming into town and he races down the street and he can't get through the crowd because he's small like a child and he's figuring, how am I going to see him? How am I going to get a view of him? How am I going to do this? And he sees a sycamore tree and he climbs up and says, at least I'll get a view. Maybe he'll notice me, but I've got to get close. And that's when Jesus sees him because that's what the Lord does. He sees our need. And if we're going to go into the world and be his ambassadors like he's called us to do, then that's what we need to do. So we need to have trait one. We need to be genuinely interested in other people. If you're not that way, you don't feel it, you just don't really care, then you need to get on your knees and ask the Lord, Lord, change my heart. I've got to love people more. If you're introverted and you don't feel comfortable, then get on your knees and ask the Lord to change you and make you more of an extrovert. Then, after we care about people, we need to recognize that everybody around us, listen now, everybody you will come in contact this with this week has spiritual needs and personal pain. So we need to open the door for ministry and for opportunity by listening and asking questions. Jesus does this with Zacchaeus. He says, I'm coming to your house. And I've studied this passage, preached this passage many times. I've never seen this before. He says, look at the text. He says, I'm going to come stay there. The word in the Greek is abide. In other words, I'm not just going to have a quick snack. Let me pop in for a couple minutes. Give me a little bit of tea and a banana. I'll be fine. I'll be on my way. i got a busy schedule. You know, Zacchaeus. So I tell you what, you made all this effort. Why don't I come over for a couple minutes, hang out with you, and then I'll be on my way. That's not what he says. Here's the most despised man in town, and he says, I want to come stay at your house. That told Zacchaeus, and it told everybody else that he was important. And that Jesus wanted to spend quality time to know him and to minister directly to him. That's what God wants to do for you and me this week. God wants to spend quality time with us this week. He wants to minister to us and help us. Now, from the standpoint of Jesus, look back up for a second. How many times do we miss these types of opportunities that are all around us because we're looking down? To illustrate this point, let me reread verses 3 to 5 a little bit differently. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. And he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came through that place, he was looking at his iPhone, and he was posting on Instagram how many people were in the crowd around him and how great this was. You say, come on, Paul, that's facetious. But doesn't it hit home? Because wouldn't that be what we're doing? Look at all these people. Picture, selfie. All right, everybody gather around. Selfie. Look at my crowds. I wonder how many likes I'll get for this one. I'm in Jericho today doing the whole Jericho tour. Hey, everybody say hey. Okay, good. All right, we got that. Post that Instagram, post that to Facebook, Twitter it out. Imagine if Jesus had been looking down. Because if Jesus had been looking down, here's the most obvious thing I'm going to say today. 
if Jesus hadn't been, had been looking down, he wouldn't have been looking up. And if he wasn't looking up, he wouldn't have seen the short little tax collector that was clinging to a tree branch, trying to get a look at Jesus, hoping for some interaction and hoping ultimately that his life would change. People, we are looking for interaction. We crave it. You know, one of the saddest things I see is when I'm in a restaurant and I see a couple together and they're both on their phones. When I see a parent alone with a child and the child sitting there with their kid's meal and sitting there and the parent's on the phone doing this, scrolling, doing this, and the child's just sitting there alone. Nobody's talking. Nobody's interacting. What are we communicating? Listen, I know this is about to get personal. I'm sorry. Holy Spirit, help us. What are we communicating when we're on our phone while we're with other people? I read a couple articles this week and saw, watched some videos, and, and it was interesting because they said, you know, when you're at a meal with somebody, you're in a conference room with somebody, instead of everybody being on their phone, instead of laying the phone on the table, either upside down or right side up to see, well, somebody go, oh, hold on a second, I just got a text, hold on, just, oh, let me just, instead, put it away, or rather, don't even bring it. Oh, y'all, come on, I mean, that kind of radical church is this? What are we teaching our kids? Because our responsibility is what they're doing because they're watching us. So are they learning a preoccupation with self or are they learning a preoccupation with other? See, the reason that, that we get disturbed about that parent that's sitting at the table on their phone while the child is sitting there looking for some interaction is because it shows how much focused we are on, on what other people are saying and doing rather than the people that are right in front of us. And it's a subconscious message that we're not as important as the people on the phone, and that damages relationships way more than we can imagine. Marriages are fragile enough. Families are fragile enough without us adding to that. Now you say, well, sometimes it's an emotional escape. Maybe I don't really want to talk to that person. Well, that just highlights then there's other issues in that relationship that, are, that you got to deal with that are far more important than the digital relationships. It also applies to saying things and, and hinting at things by posting articles or videos that communicate a problem in our lives that needs to be addressed. But instead of doing what's biblical and going directly to the person, we take a passive-aggressive approach and post something on, on the Internet that kind of alludes to a problem about a spouse or a child or a friend or whatever. One of my least favorite examples of this is the Facebook post that talks about, I need to eliminate people from my life that cause drama. Well, now everybody that's a friend of yours is going, are they talking about me? Am I the drama person? Or there's my, my ultimate favorite. Let's see how many of you really read my posts, and I'll determine whether I want to keep you as my friend. You know what? Unfriend me now. Let's do that, because I'm not going to respond to that. If you have a problem with somebody, be biblical. Go talk to them. Don't take a passive-aggressive approach. Well, I got a little problem. Everybody's going, what in the world's going on there? 
If you need counseling, you need spiritual encouragement, you need family counseling, you need marriage counseling, that's why I'm here. You don't like me, you don't want to talk to me, you don't trust me, you don't want to tell me your deep circuits, that's fine, I'll refer you to somebody. But do not do it on social media. Deal with it. Now we can look at those two traits, Jesus cared about people and Jesus looked for opportunities to minister and encourage. And we know they're important, but we may be saying, all right, well, that's great, Paul, but how do I get stronger on this in my life? This will only be possible if we follow Jesus' example in the third trait. And in fact, I want to tell you, I buried the lead this morning because this is the foundation for the other two. So let's look at the third one. Jesus established the purposeful priority of God's presence. Jesus established the purposeful priority of God's presence. By that, I mean that with all the busyness of his life and all the demands of the people, and we can't fathom how much it was, that it would have been easy for Jesus, talking humanly now because he was fully God and fully man, it would have been easy for him to retreat back into himself. And if he had had a phone or an iPad, who could have blamed him? for escaping to it once in a while. But the one who was the most busy of anyone, who had the greatest calling of anyone, who had the greatest burden of anyone, made it a distinct priority, listen now, to be in the Father's presence. So not only do we need to have our heads up to the lives of other people, but we need to have our heads up to heaven. Remember when the disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is about to be betrayed and they're so tired and Jesus says to them, watch and pray. I tried to think of the parallel for today and I think he would have said to them if it was 2017, instead of looking at your iPhones, pay attention and pray. Because I bet, I bet if that was 2017, the disciples all would have been scrolling. What's going on? Let me text. We're in the garden right now. Jesus seems a little burdened, you know, everybody. Hey, look at that video of that cat. That's awesome. Hey, John, did you see the video of the cat? Man, that's so cool. They wouldn't have been sleeping. They would have been scrolling. One of the greatest dangers of technology is that it has robbed us of our time in study and prayer rather than enhancing it. And if you don't believe that statement's true, and that's okay if you don't, ask yourself a couple questions. Okay? It's about to get personal. Question one, what's the ratio of your time on technology versus your time in the word and prayer? Now you say, well, okay, I used my technology to study the word of God because I, I'll be honest with you, technology has created some incredible resources for us to use to study. But then we have to ask question two. When we're studying on our technology, is it singularly focused study or do we get distracted and just check our Instagram and our Twitter and ESPN and, and NBC News and find out what's going on? Be honest now. Do, do you really, when you get on your computer, and I struggle this when I'm studying for messages, I'll be studying, I'm like, let me just check the Blackhawks score and see what's going on with that. And then 10 minutes later, I'm like, Wait a second, I was just in the middle of studying God's word, and I looked at the Blackhawks game, then I checked Fox News, then I checked ESPN to see what was going on at the bowl games, and now I'm 10 minutes down the road. I've lost my train of thought, and I got completely distracted. Come on, you know that happens. 
So here's a fresh challenge for 2017. This is an encouragement. Every time you study, put the technology away, grab an actual Bible in your hands, sit down with a pen and paper and study God's Word. Just do it. I'm not being critical here. I'm trying to get us back to the place, trying to get myself back to the place where we're studying well. You cannot nurture your relationship with the Lord online. And if technology is stunning your spiritual growth, then you and I need to make some really wise decisions in 2017. And our preoccupation with technology is not only about study, but it extends to other areas. Question three, what's your ratio of time on technology versus serving the Lord? What's your ratio of technology versus serving your family? Now you say, well, come on, Paul, you're being tough. It's the first of the year. I'm tired. I just need a little break. It's harmless. Listen, if you're tired, go to bed. I'm preaching to myself here. Hello. If you're tired, go to bed so you can wake up refreshed and ready to live for Christ. But we're laying there on social media, looking at videos, checking what everybody's done instead of caring for ourselves. If we really want to be brutal about this, and I'm going to offend, I think, everybody in the room right now, so here goes. Is your phone the first thing you look at in the morning and the last thing you look at at night? Come on, it's a hard question. Do you look at your phone before you say hi to your spouse? Do you look at your phone before you say hi to the Lord? Do you know that studies show that late night usage of technology with LED screens negatively impacts the quality of your sleep, causes difficulty falling asleep, gives you less REM sleep, and promotes grogginess the next day. Goodness knows I need more grogginess the next day. Why? Because your phones and social media inhibit the release of melatonin, and melatonin causes us to sleep. So we're popping melatonin pills while we're checking our scroll. We're fighting ourselves. Saw an interesting video this week that said, don't charge your phone by your bed. Break the addiction. Researchers said there's nothing inherently wrong with technology, but we're imbalanced with how we use it. And being on social media triggers dopamine in our bodies, and dopamine's addictive. It has the same effect as alcohol and gambling. And our willpower is usually too weak to deal with those addictions. I've actually gone to people's houses, and we've poured out the alcohol in the sink because it was affecting them so much, and they needed to dispose of it. Now, the same concept applies to technology because the same buzz that alcohol gives you, the same buzz that gambling gives you, is the same buzz that social media gives you. So we're releasing dopamine, and we get addicted to it, and now we have to make intentional choices. How am I going to negate its influence? Remember, don't overreact here. We've made wise decisions. There are so many sociological studies, let me finish, that back this up. Too many to list. We don't have enough time to, to even spend a lot of time on it. But let me give you a couple highlights. Spending too much time on social media leads to a greater risk of obesity, negative body image, discouragement over cyberbullying, depression, and lower satisfaction with life. These are all uh, conclusions from articles. 
been shown to actually undermine the social connection it promises to provide while having a strong influence, especially on teenagers, to make them gravitate to smoking, drinking, and drug use. It creates security issues. One in six teenagers have accounts that automatically include their location when they post online. Not to mention that we willingly provide personal information, ad preferences, and as somebody said, we're creating the world's largest memory vault of pictures. Meanwhile, companies like, I'll just Facebook because it's the one I studied, are constantly mining our information. They're doing things like creating an organ donation database. Why does a social networking site need an organ donation database? They're controlling advertising. We saw during the election that they're determining what you see in your newsfeed. They're even tracking your sleep patterns. Now, if an outside company tried to do that, or if a president, Obama or Trump, I don't care which one, if a president tried to do that, we would go nuts. But instead, we're voluntarily, willingly allowing a company to do that. The conclusion of the researcher was, at the end of the day, we're not experiencing deep joy or fulfillment. Kids admit in studies that they don't know how to form deep, meaningful relationships. They haven't learned it. They certainly haven't seen it from our family structures. And they don't have the coping mechanisms to make them. So when they, or when we as adults, because they're following our example, when they become stressed, instead of going to people, instead of going to the Lord, they go to social media, detach, shut people out, and become social voyeurs. This is what we're doing to ourselves. And we forget that the one place of joy and fulfillment is with the Lord. We've got to get back. We've got to make decisions and spend far more time. Listen now. Far more time in the presence of the Lord in 2017. Come on, we've got to affirm that. We've got to commit to that. Starts Thursday night. Spend time in the presence of the Lord Thursday night. Two chapters after chapter 19, when you go to chapter 21, you can look at it later. Jesus says to us, when you see the signs of the end times, lift up your heads because your redemption's drawing near. And listen, 2016 showed us a lot of those signs. Israel's increasingly being isolated and opposed. Russia's becoming strong again. China is subtly maneuvering into power. Nations are at war. There are natural disasters going on. This is all written in this book. And there's a loss of moral shame in our culture. There's increased acceptance of open depravity. Listen, it is time for us to get our heads up and to mature in our faith and to prepare ourselves for the fact that Christ is coming soon and to help love and minister to people so they're ready too. The Spirit of God is challenging us this morning to hear His voice and to make wise, intentional, purposeful choices in this new year about how we're going to do that, what needs to change, what needs to be adapted, what we need to do to obey the word of the Lord. Because Jesus is saying to us, and he's showing us, lift up your heads.
Look at people. Look at your spouse. Look at your kids. Look at your friends. Look at your church. Look at unsaved people and look to the heavens because Jesus is coming soon.